Today, we're talking about George Santos using campaign money on OnlyFans. We've got a YouTube AI controversy with Demi Lovato and Troy Sivan, among others. This new Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey controversy has people divided. The mom whose six-year-old shot that teacher is officially going to prison. And America's opioid crackdown isn't stopping overdoses, but that's not even the most concerning thing. We're talking about all that and so much more on today's brand new extra-large Philip DeFranco show. You daily dive into the news, so just make sure you hit that like button and let's jump into it. Starting with, I got a question for you. Was this a case of excessive force or were the cops justified? Because that debate is playing out online right now. And at the center of this, we have a man and a woman by the name of Anthony Lee and Christina Pierre. And according to the police's version of events, officers approached them because they were smoking marijuana at a bus stop. Right, reportedly, both of them were employees at the nearby Bojangles restaurant. And then the police said that they told the pair that they were under arrest, at which point Pierre allegedly punched one of the officers in the face. Though notably, some witnesses claimed that the officer actually punched her. But either way, none of it was caught on camera, with both her and Lee resisting arrest, according to the cops, who also said they took Lee into custody and found a concealed loaded 9mm handgun in his bag. And they also said Pierre kept resisting with police claiming that she tucked her arms underneath her body so they couldn't handcuff her. And that is actually where the video starts with several officers seen restraining her face down on the ground and one cop who arrived as backup repeatedly striking her with downward blows. Right here, the police say that the officer had issued several verbal commands, but when she didn't comply, he struck her thigh seven times with his knee and 10 times with a closed fist. Though as others have noted, Pierre appeared to have marks on her face suggesting that her thigh wasn't the only place that she was injured. You can also hear bystanders reacting to the violence. Now why he kicking her? Why does he mean that lady like that? Why and eventually the cops managed to arrest Pierre and they charged both her and Lee with several different crimes, including marijuana possession, resisting arrest, assault, and possession of a firearm. And so with all this, the video has gone absolutely viral, provoking a stunned response online. People saying things like, beating the shit out of people for smoking weed. Great job, guys. Everyone feels super safe now. Or if marijuana was legal, this entire interaction could have just been good morning, officers. You also have the local branch of the NAACP pointing out the racial aspect of this with Lee and Pierre both being black and most of the officers appearing to be white. But also on the other side of this, you had police chief Johnny Jennings, who is black, put out several statements defending the officers, saying he believes the facial injuries have been sustained on an initial struggle with a single officer, but saying that the cop's body camera was knocked off during the struggle. And adding there, police use of force is never easy to watch. Officers are trained to strike large muscle groups in order to gain compliance during an arrest. I watched the body-worn camera footage and believe that it tells more of the story than what is circulating on social media. But then adding there that he can't release the footage without a court order, so the PD's attorney has requested one and they'll put it out as soon as possible. Though very notably, Jennings also acknowledged that the department may not have handled everything perfectly, and he said that the department would consider changes to its policy, and that including its response to marijuana offenses and the need to, quote, deliver body strikes if we have four officers subduing an individual. And so those are the details that we have available right now. Obviously, we're waiting to see what else comes out, but uh, where do you land on this right now and why? And then, yeah, we finally have some closure on that news involving that six-year-old boy who brought a gun to class and shot his own teacher. As you might remember, that story happened back in January when the Virginia boy retrieved his mother's pistol from her purse at home and took it to school, with him then, in class, pulling it out and shooting his teacher, Abby's Werner, the bullet hitting her in the hand and upper chest, sending her to the hospital for two weeks. This poor woman saying she has gory nightmares and needed five surgeries to regain motion in her left hand. And so pretty quickly, the blame fell on the boy's mother, 26-year-old Deja Taylor. And then we saw in June, she actually pleaded guilty to using cannabis while owning a firearm since police found roughly one ounce of cannabis in her home after the shooting. And so the big update and news now is that a judge has handed down her full sentence of 21 months in federal prison. Though notably, the situation isn't over because she's still facing sentencing on a state charge of felony child neglect as well. And then, so an online 
headline and celebrity drama news, let's talk about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. That's because Taylor Swift fans have been digging up Travis Kelsey's old tweets, and for the most part, you know, they've been amused by them. Right? People finding posts from like 2009 to 2012, when Travis would have been like 20 to 23, roughly. And some are just like those old, super mundane tweets about wanting Olive Garden and Taco Bell. There's also a one where he's just like super pumped about a squirrel crushing a piece of bread, all while misspelling squirrel. People saying it had himbo vibes. Or also things like he misplaced his phone and tons about him loving Chipotle. And so with this, you had people saying things like, it's so wonderful that there's nothing cancelable about Travis Kelsey's old tweets resurfacing. He's just an ideal himbo having a good time. But then you also have people saying they found, you know, problematic ones. And it appears that those initially got a lot less attention because like the, the himbo ones, they're still on his page for the most part, but the negative ones have been removed. But the screenshots remain on Reddit, including some from 2010, where he said, as a man, you have something wrong with you if you're going for girls that weigh more than you. As well as, haha, when fat people fall, it's like slow motion entertainment because they never just fall. They always tumble and gradually hit the deck. Hashtag comedy. And damn, the Clippers girls gotta be the shitty girls that don't make the Lakers team because they always ugly. And that, in addition to a few others that have popped up, but also with what we're seeing online right now, and of course, things may change. This is still a developing situation. Is that while you do have some people that aren't happy about those, you have a lot of Swifties actually very willing to give him some grace. With him saying things like, y'all can repost and look at Travis's old tweets all you want, but that doesn't make it his truth now. Do some research on Travis Kelsey 10 years ago to now. And saying, if we're gonna bring up his old tweets, let's celebrate the fucking character development this man has had. As well as bringing up Travis being sexist, fat phobic 13 years ago, like, yeah, Taylor was also slut shaming on her song Better Than Revenge 13 years ago and changed the lyric to make it less like that. It's almost like with 10 plus years, people change. I'm not excusing any of his behavior, but it's just not relevant at this point. And so with that, you know, you have some saying, you know, is this situation right now an example of like people evolving online instead of like kind of just trying to cancel someone for something back in the day? They're now more considerate to the idea that people change and grow and like learn from their past. Or two, others arguing this is just bias, arguing that, you know, if this had been someone else, not a Travis Kelsey, then maybe they'd have a different reaction, right? Because Swifties are so into Taylor and Travis, they don't want to cancel him. But yeah, ultimately with that, I want to pass the question off to you. Where do you land on this? Are we seeing a changing mindset or do you think that like the reaction that we're seeing right now is bias? And then do you think that Britney Spears' memoir should be turned into a movie? And I ask that because in the news right now, you have a lot of big names wanting that to happen, but also you have people saying it doesn't sound like a good idea. Or for some background, Britney's memoir, The Woman and Me, has been a massive success. It details her life, her career, the exploitation that came with it, and of course, the conservatorship that controlled her life. And now, according to page six, there is a planned screen adaptation that is in its very early stages as interest mounts. And as far as who's interested, according to reports, they've named Brad Pitt, Reese Witherspoon, and Margot Robbie, all of whom have reportedly expressed interest in taking on the project with their respective production companies. And what you've seen are, are people having problems with these reports for a couple of reasons. Right? Some think that there should be no film or TV adaptation of this at all, arguing that people should stop trying to profit off of a woman who has been constantly exploited. You know, saying that the entertainment industry just stood by as she was dragged left and right. Now they want to step in and make some money off of her. But there, of course, it is worth noting that it doesn't look like this is going to happen against Britney's will, with reports claiming that she is involved in the meetings about the adaptation, which is actually why some of the biggest backlash stems around the fact that Brad Pitt is putting his name in the hat as a potential producer. The number of people think this is completely unacceptable because he himself has been accused of abuse. Right? If you didn't know, Angelina Jolie claimed in a lawsuit that he choked one of their children and struck another in the face, also claiming that he physically assaulted her. And since so much of Britney's story has to do with abuse, people think that an alleged abuser shouldn't be involved in telling it. And people saying things like, Brad Pitt, biopics about mistreated women are not a vehicle for you to repent or mend your public image, go find something else. And the way Brad Pitt gets himself so involved in abused women's stories, considering what he did to his own wife and kids, feels extremely uncomfortable. And there, people bring up some of his past projects, right? Like his production company produced Blonde, a Marilyn Monroe biopic that was widely panned for exploiting Marilyn's life and legacy. With people saying things like Brad Pitt constantly throwing his name on stories about the exploitation and abuse of women is a different type of evil to me. And in general, people think that the project would be in better hands with either Reese or Margot. And so with all that, I go back to the original question. Should Britney Spears' memoir be turned into a movie? And then to add to that, if yes, who do you think should make it? And then, 
All right, so is this weird? Even talking about this brand, it just kind of brings me to a comfort place. Like that's how magical our new partner and sponsor of the PDS, Cozy Earth, is to me. And you need to understand, this is the best betting we've ever had. And with Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales here, it's time to jump on this deal. Like I'm not kidding, Cozy Earth gives you the softest, most luxurious feeling fabric, guaranteed. And if you somehow do not love Cozy Earth sheets, you have 100 days to get your money back. But also, I can't imagine you not loving these, and you won't stop there. Their hoodies and joggers are like taking the bed with you during your day. They feel as soft and cozy as the sheets made with viscous from bamboo. I get this, both Cozy Earth apparel and sheets are naturally temperature regulating and moisture wicking, so you'll stay more comfortable year round. And I will say, as someone that runs hot, that is a great selling point. And Cozy Earth also prides themselves on the ethical production of all their products, and the durable fabric doesn't pill even after continual washing and drying. They just keep getting softer and better and more comfortable. I get this, Cozy Earth's Black Friday Cyber Monday sales are already underway, and you can save up to 40%, but you gotta hurry, this offer ends soon. So go to CozyEarth.com slash DeFranco and enter DeFranco at checkout to save up to 40%. That's CozyEarth.com slash DeFranco, CozyEarth.com slash DeFranco. And then, yo, what happens in Rio stays in Rio, especially when you literally cannot leave. Right, so back in September, three British Airways flight attendants were out on the town in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, the night before a return flight to Heathrow. When they were finally ready to wrap things up and head back to the hotel, two of them said they got into a taxi, but that it took them to a disused gas station in a rough neighborhood instead. And there they said armed men stole two cell phones and other belongings. But Fortunately, one of the crew members said they had a third hidden cell phone, which they used to hail a taxi to the hotel once the gunman left. Except then, on the way there, they said a man on a motorcycle robbed them a second time, stealing the remaining cell phone. And only after that did they spot a military police vehicle and get help. Meanwhile, the third crew member who stayed behind went through a whole ordeal of his own, saying that he met a woman, and after chatting and drinking for a few minutes, he blacked out, remembering nothing before waking up lying in the street. And so naturally, all three of them were traumatized, right? They were just grateful to escape alive. And understandably, they were in no condition to work, and the return flight was canceled. Except all of that, uh, uh, the police now say it is complete bullshit. Because according to the cops, the crew members actually just had a wild night of drugs and drinking and they invented this whole story to cover up their antics. And it's not just a tale of different stories. Surveillance video actually showed the first two crew members simply drinking for several hours as late as five in the morning. And as for the third guy, he allegedly consumed so many drugs and so much alcohol that he just fell unconscious. With later construction workers reviving him and they had to wait for an ambulance, he allegedly showed them a white powder suspected by police to be cocaine. And then at the hospital, police say that he actually admitted to spending the night taking drugs with a pair of women in an unfamiliar neighborhood. Whereas allegedly, the only part of their story that is true is that one of their cell phones did appear to have actually been stolen. And the situation is still not over because the police in Rio are considering charges against the trio, but also they're planning to summon British Airways representatives to establish whether the crew cooked up this lie themselves or if they were actually instructed to create this fabrication by airline management. And then, y'all, how does every story about George Santos just sound more and more ridiculous? Because today, the big news is that George Santos used campaign funds for OnlyFans. And that is just the tip of the iceberg of damning evidence the House Ethics Committee found against Santos. Right, according to the 56-page report released Today, Santos used campaign funds for personal purposes, defrauded donors, and filed false or incomplete campaign finance reports. The report also finding that Santos reported hundreds of thousands of dollars in fake loans to his campaign, which he then repaid himself with actual money. They also found a bunch of expenditures that had nothing to do with his campaign, including hotel stays in Vegas, thousands of dollars in spa treatments, and even Botox. But this is Santos, so it does not stop there. Georgie Boy also reportedly used a company called Redstone Strategies to skirt around campaign contribution limits. And investigators also found that Santos transferred himself $200,000 from Redstone throughout 2022, and then used that money to pay off personal credit cards, shopping at Hermes and Sephora, and last but not least, purchases on OnlyFans. Now, notably, the, the committee has sent their findings off to the DOJ, but 
did not recommend any punitive action against Santos in the House. With the committee's chairman, Representative Michael Guest, notably saying that recommending punishment would have actually taken the committee several more months. But also, the Washington Post reports that a source confirmed that Guest will be filing a motion to expel Santos on Friday to be considered when the House returns from Thanksgiving break on the 28th. And all of this is, of course, Santos is already facing a 23-count federal indictment. He's pleaded not guilty to that, and he's already survived one expulsion attempt out of concern regarding due process. But also, very big news, following this report's release, he announced on Twitter that he will not be seeking re-election after all, saying if there was a single ounce of ethics in the Ethics Committee, they would not have released this biased report. But none of this answers the most important question, and that is, who is George Santos subscribed to on OnlyFans? I demand people to make freedom of information requests now. And is he paying for like vanilla stuff or is it like stuff with feet and or cakes or what are we talking about? The people need to know. Because if the house is going to let that fraud stay there, we might as well get some gossip. And then, you know, when it comes to AI and music, we're seeing some artists openly condemning the use, but you actually have others leaning into it. With now, for example, big names like Demi Lovato, Troy Sivan, Charlie Puth, John Legend, T-Pain, and more partnering with YouTube for a new experiment on this whole front. And they're calling it Dream Track in YouTube Shorts. And it allows creators to type in a prompt for a song, select one of the participating artists, and then receive a 30-second track with an AI-generated version of that artist's voice that can be used for a YouTube short. With YouTube here also providing an example, right? If you tell it you want an upbeat ballad from Charlie Puth about how opposites attract, you'll get something like this. Baby, we've got nothing in common But I know that I'm what you've been wanting For so long now and this tool, which was made in partnership with Google DeepMind, will initially only be available to a small group of creators who will give feedback. And in addition to that, we're seeing the artists involved in this project speaking out about why they chose to be a part of it. With Demi Lovato here saying in a statement, that the development of AI technology is rapidly changing the way we navigate the landscape, and I believe as artists, we need to be a part of shaping what that future looks like. Though, of course, some are also expressing some hesitation. Right? I mean, you had Charlie XCX saying she was and still is cautious about the idea, but is interested to see what comes out of these endeavors as AI grows. Troy Vaughn also expressing similar feelings. But overall, a lot of the artists participating felt that it was important for musicians to be involved with AI developments instead of just backing away from them. And a big thing is all of this coming just a few days after the platform did a broader rollout of AI guidelines, right? Like requiring creators to disclose and label AI use when they've made any kind of altered or synthetic content that's realistic. Also allowing YouTube's music partners to request the removal of AI-generated songs that mimic an artist's voice, right? Because while the artists in this project are willing to play with AI, a lot of artists really hate it. Right? I mean, you've had the likes of Drake, Bad Bunny, and Ed Sheeran speaking out against it, right? And this is gonna be one of the biggest points of friction in the music industry for some time regarding creativity, ownership, copyright, and more. I mean, if you really think about it, AI is kind of the only thing that is like as disruptive as other key points in time, like uh, the rise of LimeWire and Napster, how that changed the music industry. With all that said, like, what are your thoughts here regarding AI music in general or this new YouTube tool? Right? If you were a musician or you are a musician, are you are you more scared of it? Or do you think that it makes sense that artists are like, you know what, let's, let's dabble, let's try it out. And then, you the Red Cup Rebellion lives on, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, that is the strike by thousands of Starbucks workers taking place today. Because for those unfamiliar, today is Red Cup Day at Starbucks, where you can get a free reusable cup with a purchase of one of their holiday drinks. And notably, it is also one of the busiest days of the year for Starbucks and a point of contention between the workers and the company. So this is now the second year in a row that the unionized Starbucks workers have staged a widespread walkout in protest of the company's staffing and scheduling policies. And with this, they're asking the company to shut down mobile orders on promotional days, saying that the volume of orders is unmanageable, resulting in overrun employees, angry customers, and wasted drinks and food. And according to the organizers, today's strike will be the largest in the 
the two years workers have been organizing. With the Starbucks Workers United Union saying that they expect 5,000 workers to take part in today's walkout. One barista in Oklahoma City saying, Understaffing hurts workers and also creates an unpleasant experience for customers. Starbucks has made it clear that they won't listen to workers, so we're advocating for ourselves by going on strike. And this, as Starbucks has been staunchly opposed to the unionization efforts of their workers and has yet to reach a labor agreement with the more than 300 stores that have unionized. In fact, regional offices of the National Labor Relations Board have issued 111 complaints against the company for unfair labor practices, including refusal to negotiate. Now with this, though, Starbucks has claimed that the union is refusing to schedule negotiations and set about today's strike. Quote, we remain committed to working with all partners side by side to elevate the everyday, and we hope that Workers United's priorities will shift to include the shared success of our partners in negotiating contracts with those they represent. And then also kind of rubbing salts in the wound, saying that this strike will have very little impact on their operations today, saying it will only be affecting a small subset of their stores nationwide. And then now, staying hydrated can actually be a challenge, and I cannot stress enough how important staying hydrated is for your body. So I thank God for our friends over at Liquid IV. I mean, this is the stuff that replenishes my electrolytes through workouts and hiking, which I mean, is something I take extra serious since there was a time a while ago where I actually collapsed on a hike. There were numerous bad choices made. Uh, not having this was one of them. So thank you to Liquid IV for being a part of my better decisions, but also for being a fantastic partner and sponsor of today's show. And to be blunt, Liquid IV works faster at hydrating you than water alone and has three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink. Liquid IV also offers eight vitamins and nutrients for faster hydration and everyday wellness and offers up to 100% daily value of essential B vitamins, B3, B5, B6, and B12. And like I said, I usually drink Liquid IV during my workouts, but it's also great for that hydrating nightcap after a night out. With the Hydration Multiplier Variety Pack, you can easily bring these on the go and they're easy to pack for vacations. And it's so easy, you just tear, pour, shake, and drink. Which also, did I mention it tastes great? And get this, from November 16th to the 27th, you can get 30% off plus free shipping off of your entire Liquid IV order. Just click that link down below and use code DeFranco. And hey, if you see this after the 27th, no worries. Just use code DeFranco and get 20% off plus free shipping. And then, this is really interesting. Imagine there's no opioid crisis. There is no heroin crisis. There is no fentanyl crisis. Rather, instead, imagine that for the past two decades, we've actually been looking at one massive cascading addiction crisis spanning all these drugs and more. Because that is the big lesson being taken away from a Washington Post analysis of 760 million opioid transactions detailed in a DEA database that ends in 2019. With the Post there looking at shipments of oxycodone and hydrocodone pills in particular, which accounts for three quarters of total opioid pill shipments to pharmacies. And with that, finding something relatively positive, that shipments of the two drugs peaked back in 2011 at 12.8 billion and then plummeted almost by half to around 7 billion by 2019. And shipments of 80 milligram oxycodone pills, which are especially potent, dropping 92% over the same decade. In fact, every prescription opioid declined in the final five years of the data, except for one, buprenorphine, the drug used to treat opioid addiction. And it turns out that's pretty telling because the crackdown on opioids ironically spawned something even worse. Right around the late 2000s, early 2010s, two big shifts transformed the U.S. drug market. One, law enforcement clamped down on the diversion of opioids into the black market. You know, the DEA began suing some of the largest pill distributors while other agencies targeted pill mills and rogue doctors. And two, the medical profession got more careful about how they prescribe opioids for pain relief. Right, and this was partly due to more awareness of the harms here and partly due to the CDC guidelines and state laws limiting prescriptions. And while those measures were arguably effective, they did nothing to help all the people who got addicted to pain meds. So with their doctors suddenly unwilling to fill their prescriptions, they turned to local drug dealers instead. And then those assholes sold them something that offered the same high for a fraction of the price heroin. But pretty soon, even that and other plant-based drugs like cocaine and marijuana that were cartel staples for decades got eclipsed by something 50 times more potent, fentanyl, right? And this synthetic opioid comes in powder or pill form, just like the prescription opioids consumers initially got hooked on. And for the cartels, fentanyl was actually easier both to make and to smuggle, right? Whereas it took months and acres of land to grow poppy for heroin, they only needed a small lab, some easily accessible chemicals, and a few days of time to make fentanyl. Which is why you have people like a researcher at UC San Francisco School of Medicine saying, we created a huge cohort of people dependent on opioid pills, and when we pulled back on 
on those, we created a heroin wave. And that quickly got replaced by fentanyl and then people really started dying. Right? I mean, by 2017, fentanyl had become the leading cause of overdose deaths in America. With fatal overdoses from the drug surging 94% from 2019 to 2021. And the CDC estimating that it and other synthetic opioids made up two thirds of the more than 110,000 overall overdose deaths in 2022. And all of that now making illegal fentanyl the leading cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 49, claiming more lives than car accidents, gun violence, or suicide. I mean, to try to help you visualize this, to give you some perspective, we're talking about nearly two people or a fully loaded Boeing 757 crashing and killing everyone on board every single day. But also a key thing here in the shift from oxycodone to fentanyl, we didn't just replace one crisis with another. Rather, we're literally dealing with the same crisis, just deadlier. With a post analysis finding that most of the counties with the highest fentanyl death rates are the same ones that had the highest doses of prescription pills per capita years ago. And this concentrated in hard hit states such as West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio. Right, so to try to sum it all up, greedy, corrupt pharmaceutical companies created a huge market full of opioid addicts. And then as governments, lawsuits, and more prudent doctors forced them to pull out of that market, drug cartels took their place. Then those cartels formed their own underground pharmaceutical industry and began supplying even more lethal versions of the original drugs. And then finally, bringing all this history full circle, we've seen growing amounts of counterfeit opioid pills meant to look exactly like real pharmaceuticals, except they contain fentanyl or other drugs. Right? I mean, we've seen the share of overdose deaths involving counterfeit pills more than double between mid-2019 and late 2021, even tripling in Western states. So of course, the big question is, what do we do? Well, right now, and this is not hyperbole, if you ask a number of Republicans, their answer is to bomb Mexico. But then also, when it is not that, it is plug up our southern border. And to be sure, most fentanyl is manufactured by Mexican drug cartels using Chinese precursor chemicals and smuggled into American markets. So notably, most of it is coming not through illegal immigration, but rather official ports of entry with traffickers hiding drugs inside passenger vehicles and commercial trucks. And so unlike Trump, who focused on building a wall that ignored the way narcotics actually enter the country, Biden has worked to improve scanning technology at border crossings. But notably here, CBP has failed to automate the process with AI software and centralized command centers. So you have agents having to manage annually review each scan. And a big thing is that their jobs are exponentially harder today than it was a decade or two ago because the drugs are harder to catch. Right? I mean, a year's supply of pure fentanyl powder for the U.S. market could fit in the beds of just two pickup trucks. And the precursor chemicals, too, are far harder to confiscate. Or they come through seaports buried underneath a mountain of legitimate goods or get packaged with false labels. And then even when they're discovered, it's hard to distinguish the chemicals destined for drug labs from those meant for everyday goods such as cheese, soap, and epilepsy medication. And then even when regulators put specific precursor chemicals on a watch list, traffickers just import legally available substances is basically pre-precursors and combine them to form the regulated one instead. Whereas the poppy and coca needed to make heroin and cocaine came from just a few countries, fentanyl precursors come from all over the globe. All of which is why the former associate director of the RAND Corporation's Drug Policy Research Center remarked, you can't stop this stuff, otherwise you'd seriously disrupt the global economy. You've essentially got this massive game of cat and mouse between law enforcement and drug cartels where the latter keeps adapting to the former's moves and hundreds of thousands of consumers just keep dying in the meantime. But that's also where critics of the current policy argue that focusing on supply hasn't worked, so we need to attack demand as well. And to try to do that through a host of measures to help people suffering from addiction become clean without criminalizing them. While in the meantime, using a harm reduction approach to make sure that those who are addicted have access to clean needles, fentanyl test strips, and medical attention if they overdose. But also, even all of that, that is a story for another show. I've, I've tried to cram as much into today. So that is where I'm going to leave you today. But of course, uh, this is just one part of the thing. This is supposed to be a conversation. So I want to pass the question off to you watching right now. What are your thoughts on the situation? And also, if you or someone you know has experience with addiction and this whole situation, I'd love to hear from you as well. 
well. And then let's talk about yesterday, today, where we take a look back at yesterday's show. We dive into those comments and see what y'all had to say, your opinions, your arguments, sometimes even your experiences connected to the stories. And yesterday, there was a lot of conversation around that horrifying first story. Y'all saying things like, first story is really scary as a teen. Like, how damn heartless are some kids? Like, they killed him, and now his life is over, and the life of his family and friends are changed for the worst permanently. He went to school that day and never came home, and I hope they know that. As well as saying, the lack of empathy, respect, and compassion teenagers have is actually terrifying. It's like we're seeing the outcome of the already disastrous youth mental health crisis, and it's not looking good. My heart goes out to the boy's family. He died a hero, and I'm so sorry for their loss. This is something no one should experience. Some of y'all also took issue with minimizing language, saying things like, I've been saying this for years and years. We need to stop calling it bullying when it's harassment and abuse. We need to stop thinking it's playground misbehavior when it isn't any less than workplace harassment or being assaulted in the street. And some added on to that, saying we need to stop telling kids to just tell their teacher and start encouraging parents to call the cops and file charges. And saying, I guarantee that at least for several of those teens, it wasn't their first time they've hit someone. Some also saying there's no such thing as reverse racism, there's just racism. And in general, people want all those teenagers to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Also, regarding the FTC and influencers, one of the most agreed with comments was I think the influencer rules are fair. But adding, I do find it hilarious that influencers are being held to a higher standard on disclosure of sponsorship than our Supreme Court justices, senators, and Congress members. Which, yeah, you know, I, I think that we need to make a law that if, if any of those government officials get money from anyone over a certain amount of money, I think they, they should have to wear like uh, NASCAR uniforms. Right? They don't get to hide behind like nice looking suits. They got to be like, yeah, Exxon Mobil. They paid for the front patch. And personally, I, I love uh, McConnell or Pelosi to end a speech with hashtag spawn. And then finally, there were a lot of people that were split on the indie story. People saying things like the story with the baby girl almost brought me to tears. If I saw progress and happiness in my child and some doctor was ultimately the one who forced my child to die, I don't know what I would do. I can't even imagine that type of pain. And as a new mother, the indie story tears me apart on so many levels. Saying my own child who goes by the same name as a nickname may be fortunately without complications, but if I were in those parents' shoes, I, I feel like I would want to try to do the same as them. I am pro-medical euthanasia on nearly every level and for personal autonomy regarding choice of death in the case of untreatable conditions that intrinsically harm quality of life. But I don't think I could do that for my own child. Does being a parent give me the right to be, quote, selfish if you look at it in that light, even if there's nearly no chance? I'd want to spend every little second with my child. But are the cost of prolonging their suffering? I don't know. Just the thought alone hurts. I really feel for those parents. It's not an easy decision, and there really isn't a right answer in my opinion. But that is going to be the end of today's Daily Dive into the news. But fantastic news for those of you here at the end. In addition to you being able to watch and catch up with more news you need to know, I got another secret video for you. You can just click or tap, or I got that link in the description as well. It's been a fantastic secret side project. It's been, I just, it feels like an escape for me. So I'm just going to keep doing them until I don't want it. But if you like them, go subscribe to that secret channel. But with all that said, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you right back here next time.